You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I want to welcome you this morning, and um, we've got a lot of people that are out today, um, a lot of people that are on vacation. I know there's a group in the mountains from our church um, that are actually together, so Tyson's family, Rachel, Maggie, Will, um, a bunch of them are up in the mountains for the holiday tomorrow. Some people have off work tomorrow. Um, I know the McLeods are out of town. I know the Shortings are um, doing a family thing today. So just a lot of people that are out today that we want to keep in our prayers um, as they're doing some different traveling things that they would have uh, an enjoyable time together um, as a family. Um, we do have some things coming up in our uh, bulletin that I do want to make you aware of, um, some different events. We do have uh, the ladies' night coming up on the 21st. That's going to be at... Um, Starbucks in Peachtree City, and then we have the Walk for Life on the 24th. That'll be at Ashley Park. I encourage everyone to participate in that. Even if you're not able to run or walk, just to be able to go and to participate visually, to be a visual representation of a group of people, hopefully a large group of people that want to show support for life. Um, and then I believe the 25th, let me double check just to make sure, I believe it's the 25th that we're doing our... Um, our bonfire at the uh, Mercer House. Yeah, it's, I think it's the 25th. Um, yeah, nope, it's the 1st. November 1st, sorry. November 1st, so that's not actually not going to show up on the calendar here, um, but we do have that coming up. That'll be at the Mercer House, so we'll have church service like normal Sunday morning, and then in the evening you'll be invited out to their house right down here in Brooks. Um, we'll have dinner and, and just a, a time for the kids to hang out. We'll have some activities for them. We'll also have a fire going. And so, um, usually a fun time to hang out together. So I want to make, sh- make sure you're aware of that. You've also got some items there in the I-58 section of our bulletin, letting you know some things that you can contribute this month, um, items that will help support that ministry, um, as well. All right. Um, anything that we can pray for together this morning? Um, before we get started, anything that you would like to mention? I did want to mention um, on our end of things at Trinity, we had a football game Thursday night that resulted in three different people having to go to the hospital due to concussions. Um, They were all from the other team. We specifically had uh, a young girl who uh, is adopted from Uganda, um, a place where Chris has been and that Mount Gilead used to work with. Um, That young girl was injured um, as well playing football and a helicopter had to land on our football field to take her to Eggleston and uh, by God's grace and I believe answered a prayer um, she was able to go home that night with a neck brace um, and seems to be doing well at home but um, it was a, a difficult evening for a lot of the guys on our team just kind of shaken up by the injuries and um, but we were able to use it as a as a means of pointing them to Christ we had a team meeting the next morning and I was able to just instruct them on some things that as Christians we can be encouraged by that um, that God is sovereign in our life and, and guards and protects us and um, works things for our good. And so um, it was a good, a good opportunity for us to use that situation as a means of Christ being glorified. And it was cool coming together with some of the families there at Eggleston and being able to hear their perspective on things. So um, I wanted to mention that as a point of prayer that we would pray for these three as they continue to recover from their injuries um, Thursday night. Other things that we can pray for? All right, let's pray together. Lord, we come to you and we uh, just want to uh, thank you 
for the opportunity to gather with other believers as um, even through our confession this morning of things that are um, on our hearts. Uh, Father, it's, it's evident that um, we need each other right now to be able to lean on in times where we don't always understand. And so, Father, I'm thankful that we can cast our cares upon you, that we can do it corporately together, that we can lean on each other during times of uncertainty, times of questioning. Um, and so, Father, I thank you that you have placed us in an environment with other believers where we can uh, where we can do that. And uh, God, we do come to you with uh, requests that have been mentioned this morning. We pray for those that aren't with us, that are traveling, that are uh, spending time with family and friends. God, we pray that that would be a, a fruitful time for them and that it would be an encouraging time for them to to be together and to be away from the normal routine of life and to experience a time of refreshment. I pray that you would bring uh, these families and individuals back to us safely. Um, God, that you would uh, give them safety in their travels. Um, we ask those things this morning. Um, Father, we pray that you would be for um, the Carroll family as they've uh, received this news that uh, I'm sure they don't know what to do with it right now. And I know that they're obviously very concerned for their daughter and, and what the uh, the coming future looks like for them as a family. Um, God, I pray that you would surround them with uh, people in their life that can be the encouragement that they need right now. Um, God, I pray that um, the promises that you've made would ring true. Um, God, I pray that as we've talked about recently, that um, sometimes we go through times where our circumstances don't seem to line up with what we know to be true. And so, Father, I pray that you would um, reveal yourself in this situation, that you would uh, make yourself further evident, um, even beyond the promises that you've made. Um, Father, I think even in today's text that um, you had made promises to Abram, but you, knowing his needs and his concerns, uh, further revealed yourself to him in ways that you didn't have to, but for clarification purposes for him. And so, God, I pray that in that situation, uh, while we know that you've promised to do good, and we also know at times you veil that goodness from us uh, to a future time, God, I pray that you would reveal that goodness to them very early so that they can uh, have increased trust in you. God, I pray that you'd bring that both for uh, that immediate family and for those that are close to that family, um, like the Conaways, God. I pray that you would um, just be very, um, very, very, be very real and evident in the ways that you're working and moving. Um, God, I pray that you would shine light into that dark situation. Um, Father, I pray that you would be with Nicole's mom and the checkup that she has coming, that there would be some clarity about what's going on with her physically. I pray that you would um, heal her body and, and restore her vision if that's in your will. Um, God, I pray that you'd give Daniel and Nicole wisdom in knowing how to best serve her during this time. I know that there's a lot of things that they're discussing about how they can best serve her. And so, God, I pray that they would uh, be able to make good decisions for their family um, in a way that will best serve uh, her mom. Um, Father, I pray that you would uh, be with Angela this morning and uh, just the situation that she's mentioned. God, I pray that you would... Um, just surround her today with with exactly what she needs. I pray that you would um, encourage her this morning. I pray that as as her church family, um, we would be able to encourage her. I thank you for bringing her this morning to us. And um, God, I pray that you would just uh, allow the time together today to restore her and to uh, give her uh, the perspective that she's going to need as she um, goes back into that situation potentially. I pray that you would uh, be with the Moore family as well. I thank you for Randy and allowing him to be with us over the past 
month or two, God, I thank you for his presence here. And um, God, I pray that you would just continue to work in that family and that you would be glorified and honored um, in the ways that you're working as well. Um, God, we pray that you'd be with Dan this morning as um, he's not with us and as he, his body needs rest, Father. And I pray that you would give him that rest today. I pray that he would be able to enjoy rest with you. I pray that you would allow his body to respond to his efforts to give it rest. Um, God, I pray that he would be able to fight off any sickness um, that he may be dealing with. And uh, God, I pray that he would just be able to uh, rest in anticipation of another work week and that you would uh, restore him to full health very quickly. Uh, God, I pray again that you would uh, be glorified by what takes place together this morning. I thank you for uh, maybe the small setting that we need this morning to to have intimate fellowship and um, an intimate experience in your word today. I pray that you would guide us in our time together um, and that we would leave encouraged and convicted where we need to be um, and that you would give us uh, direction for our week and how we can best uh, honor you uh, with our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're actually going to jump right into the text this morning and spend some time uh, worshiping through song at the end of our service today. So I'm going to go ahead and dismiss those that are part of our kids' class um, to the back with Miss Carolyn. And then I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. This is a, a passage that, in first reading through it, it doesn't really resonate or probably communicate what it's meant to communicate because we're separated from the cultural context in which it was given. And so the events that take place in Genesis 15 sound more odd to us than encouraging. And so I'm hoping that in our time together discussing, we can see the encouragement that's meant to be portrayed in the events that that unfold in Abram and and, uh, his journey and in his discussions and interaction with uh, God. It says in Genesis 15, verse 1, and this is a passage, the, the, the first verse here we've already covered together. We're going to kind of recap that a little bit, and then we're going to spend time looking at the entire chapter today um, from a narrative standpoint. And then next week, we're actually going to tackle one verse um, in its entirety as well, the passage here in um, verse 6 that talks about Abram being counted righteous, because that's a a passage that the New Testament writers rely on heavily uh, to build their point about salvation being by faith alone. And so we're going to look at that more extensively next week. But it says in verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know how I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. 
But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the, Ken, uh, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. This is a, a passage that. Um, I think commentators are kind of split on as to whether Abram is demonstrating a lack of faith here or just crying out for additional information to place his faith and trust in. Um, we see later on in the New Testament where um, John the Baptist's father kind of questions in a similar way how he's going to have a child and God mutes him. Um, Maybe because he should have called back to this situation and, and had in, increased faith, knowing that God had done it previously. So, so God may be showing some grace here in that Abram has no backstory, no other examples of God doing something like this to put his faith in. Abram seems to maybe demonstrate a little bit of distrust here. But again, it may be a situation like in some of these situations we talked about this morning. I'm trusting in God. I just don't know what he's doing in this situation and asking for additional revelation, additional information so that our faith and trust can be increased. And I think it's appropriate at times for us to appeal to God for that, to to uh, to question in a biblical way that we want to trust. We're just struggling in our trust and needing reaffirmation that God is active and present and working. And I think God very graciously steps into Abram's life here and gives him that additional revelation that he needs. He gives him some insight into what is happening um, and how things are playing out and why Abram can continue to trust in him. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a setting, again, that I said is, is a bit confusing when you look at it. Um, how does this offer encouragement? How does this setting offer encouragement to Abram? And I hope to unpack that a little bit today, specifically in regards to this ceremony that God walks him through with these animals that have been slaughtered and, and separated and and if you're reading through it and really trying to put yourself into that setting, it's a very gory scene. Um, there, there's bloody animals everywhere, and, and they've been placed there by Abram through the instructions of God. And, and they're placed there in such a way, and the events unfold in a certain way, where Abram is to leave that setting highly encouraged, highly encouraged in how God is working um, in his life. So we're going to unpack this some together. Our... Um, Summary sentence I'm going to go ahead and place on the TV for us to look at so we can see and understand where we're going today. Our summary sentence, we are given assurance that the promises of God will always find their fulfillment in God's glory and our good. Even if it is not always in the ways and timing we would choose. Okay, so... What we're given in this passage is assurance that when God makes promises, he fulfills promises. 
And he reveals that in, in fulfilling the promises to Abram, God's going to get glory from it and Abram's going to get good from it. But he also gives him details uh, that would probably uh, be situations that Abram would not choose. And it's certainly timing that Abram would not choose. I mean, God gets real detail-oriented with Abram and lets him know this is how it's going to unfold in the future. The assurance is that the promises will be fulfilled. God's going to receive glory from it. Abram and his family and his descendants are going to receive good from everything that plays out. But it's probably not how Abram would choose for it to play out. It's probably not the timing that he would choose either. But God's very gracious to give him some additional insight into how things are going to play out. So we have assurance that God makes promises. He fulfills promises. They always lead to his glory and our good. They don't always come in the ways that we would choose. And they certainly don't always come in the timing that we would choose either. All right. There's two encounters that take place here in Genesis 15. Um, There's the interaction with Abram and God that leads to him kind of outside his tent looking up at the stars. And then there's this other encounter where it leads to Abram overseeing God walking through the midst of these bloody animals. So two different encounters that we're given here in this passage, and we're going to look at both of them uh, this morning. In encounter number one, we see God reminding and clarifying some promises regarding the seed. Okay, we've already seen that God promises protection and provision. We see now Abram questions God's provision of a seed. Is this going to be through someone who comes really from me, or are we going to have to work in a different way through adoption? Okay, are we going to have to adopt somebody into my family, and through that seed you're going to fulfill all these promises? And then we see that God offers affirmation through the stars, and he points Abram to the stars as a token or a sign of his promise. So looking back in, in verse 1, what we already taught on, um, but just as way of reminder, God comes to Abram after these things, verse 1 tells us. And we said that that's after the, the battle. Abram goes after the kings and rescues Lot and the people of Sodom back, uh, has the interaction with Melchizedek, turns down this great possessional reward from the king of Sodom, We said, after these things, probably when Abram is wondering, did I make the right decision? I turned down money, a lot of money. I turned down potentially the opportunity to buy protection if these kings come back in full force to attack me because I defeated them. So after these things, God comes and he comes very intentionally to tell him, fear not, I'm your shield and I'm your reward. We said that God offers protection and provision to Abram, that he extends understanding. He knows that Abram is probably going to experience fear, even if he's not yet fearful. And so he offers him reasons not to fear, that he's a shield, that he's a provider, that he's a protector. And we talked about some of the ways that God does that for us in the New Testament. But ultimately, we we left ourselves that week saying that we've got to work together with other believers, We're to take care of our own hearts, as Hebrews talks about, relying on the exhortation of other believers in order to keep on believing that God will provide all things good to us, right? Because we said that that there are different things that that come into play that would cause someone to wander from their faith. 
At times, tragic events, circumstances that are not desirable, that would cause us to question God's promises and lead us away. And that's where we need the exhortation of others. We take care of our souls, and when, when our own taking care of our souls isn't enough, we need the exhortations of others to keep us clinging to those promises of God. And so God comes in and tells Abram, don't fear, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. But then in verse 2, Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. You remember we said this is probably about 10 years after Abram left his home. So he's, he's left everything, he's following God, he's seen God come through and start to provide things that he's promised. He started to give him possessions, he's started to give him interaction with the land. There's been a lot of communication about the land, and what we actually find here is that the, the Genesis narrative shifts from focus on the land to more focus on the seed now. Up to this point, the narrative is really focused on what's happening with the land. There's been famine in the land where he had to leave to go to Egypt. He comes back. There was invasion with the land. There was conflict over the land. Him and Lot couldn't agree where they were going to live. And, and so the narrative is really focused on the possession of the land. Moving forward now, we shift a little bit in talking about the seed. And we're going to see Abram and Hagar and, and all of that playing out. This shift now is, will God keep his promises to providing me an individual in my family that will inherit everything? So Abram's questioning, what, 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 what are you going to do to affirm that you really are going to fulfill this. He questions God's provision of a seed. As Abram ages, questions surround God's plan to provide. He was already too old in his mind to have a kid when he left home, right? And now it's another 10 years later. So there's maybe an element of doubt here, but really just an element of, if this doesn't hurry up and happen, time's going to run out. I don't know how much longer I have to live. And so there's a, there's a concern probably by Abram. Are you going to do what you said? Are you going to fulfill what you promised? And he poses the question, will Eliezer, the adopted individual in my life, inherit the promises? He talks about this guy being a member of his household. And he's essentially set him up to be the heir. Now, in, in archaeological studies, it's not uncommon during this time for a rich couple that does not have children to eventually adopt somebody to be the inheritor of everything that they have. And in exchange for giving them everything, that individual would take care of them in their old age. They don't have kids to do it. So they inherit, they, they adopt somebody to inherit all their stuff in exchange for take care of me in my old age, make sure I get a proper burial, and then you'll have everything because I have no one else to leave it to. So, most commentators speculate that that's who this individual has become. Maybe a servant, maybe somebody that left Haran with him, maybe somebody that jumped on board because he heard that God had promised Abram these great things and wanted to be a part of this nation that was going to be built. At some point, Eleazar comes to a position of, of influence in Abram's household to where he's next in line. Lot's left. Lot probably would have been that individual. Lot abandoned Abram, went to Sodom, there's no indication in the text that Lot was grateful at all for Abram coming to rescue him. I mean, he just goes right back to Sodom. And so Abram's looking around and says, if I were to die tomorrow, Eleazar's who would get everything. Is that really what God intended for it to be? Now, we also have to remind ourselves that God has not revealed a lot of the detail about how he plans to do this. So 
from our perspective, we're saying, no, it's not Eleazar, it's Isaac, it's Isaac. Why don't you get that? Up to this point, God hasn't really clarified. And really, if you go back and look through it, there, there's some reasons why Abram would even wonder, is Sarah the one that's supposed to give it to me? You know, so it's, it's okay, God's going to give it to me, but maybe it's through another woman. And so we see that Hagar comes into play very soon. So some of it may be doubt, but some of it's lack of clarification from God. And so he's wondering, do I need to help work this out? Or am I supposed to wait passively for God to do this in me? And so he's already kind of enacted this individual, Eleazar, to be the inheritor if he were to die, uh, that he would have someone to leave it to. I think this is an example of God ca- or of Abram casting his care upon God. In 1 Peter 5, 7, we, we're called to do this, and, and we, did, we had an opportunity to do this this morning with you sharing requests, things that are, are pertinent in your life right now that need to be cast upon God, things that we can't work out as a body here, things that we can't fix, that only God can fix. And so this is a situation where Abram, I think, is crying out to God in a biblical way, casting his cares upon God, not in a defiant way, He's not, he's not losing respect for God, right? He says, oh, Lord God, oh, sovereign one, what's happening here? So he hasn't, he hasn't lost respect for God. He's not defying God. He's not rebelling against God. He's really crying out, I think, in the way that we're called to biblically. He's casting his care and concerns upon the only one that can provide answers. And so God hears him out. And he responds, and he says in verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God affirms through the stars. God provides clarification promising Abram that his seed will expand through a child of his own. And he directs them to the stars, and they serve as a fixed sign of God's plan to save and to increase the seed of Abram. So I think God very graciously responds to Abram's concern here. And I think it's encouragement to us that when we cast our cares upon God, he hears those concerns, and I believe he responds to those concerns. He gives us exactly what we need to answer those concerns a lot of times. And he does that for Abram. He pulls him out of his tent and and pulls him outside. And and Abram would have had the benefit of seeing the sky a lot clearer than we would here where we live. So he's out in in the promised land area without the the tainting of the sky through through the pollution that, that we've contributed to the environment. He's able to look and probably see far more stars than we could. And so he, if we were to go out and do this, we would probably be overwhelmed at what we could see. He's probably even far more overwhelmed about, based on the amount of stars that he can see. And God directs him and says, if you could count these, then you could count the number of descendants that I'm going to give you. And so it's a reminder to him that he's, that he's working, that he's in control, that he has plans for Abram and his descendants, that that hasn't, that hasn't been vacated, and that it is actually going to come from an individual that Abram will produce. And I think in this encounter, we learn some important things about God. First of all, I think that we were, we're reminded that God's glory dictates his timing. God's glory dictates his timing. 
Why is God waiting? Why didn't God give him a baby as he was leaving? I mean, he expressed faith, right? He expressed faith. He left his home. He abandoned everything. Why doesn't Sarah get pregnant right then? Why isn't that like an immediate response to his faith? Hey, you've responded. Let me give you evidence that I accept that response. Why isn't there an immediate work by God to give him a child? Why does God continue to delay and to wait? I think in the New Testament, we have an answer. In Romans chapter 4, verse 18, Paul talking about Abram, he says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, and I think the answer for us is right here in verse 19, which was as good as dead. He was about 100 years old when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. God's glory dictates his timing. I believe that God is waiting for Abram to be as good as dead. So that he receives the maximum glory in this situation. I think God wants it to be absolutely positively assured in everyone's minds. That the only way for Abram and Sarah to have a baby at this point is for God to give it to them. That there's no question that this is provision from God. And so we see in the New Testament that God waits until they are as good as dead. Before he starts to fulfill these promises. And so it's a reminder to us in our own life when we, when we have to pause and wait and say, why hasn't God done this yet? Why is God delaying in his timing regarding this situation? I think it should be a reminder to us from this passage that God's glory dictates when he does things. When God believes he will receive the maximum glory in that situation, that's when he's ready to move in that situation. So Abram waits, and Abram continues to wait after this. He continues to wait after this because Abram adopting a kid doesn't give God as much glory as he needs in this situation or as much as he desires in this situation. Abram having a child with a much younger Hagar does not give God the glory that he desires in this situation. He wants a a man who's as good as dead and a woman who's as good as dead to be the starting point for the great nation, the great people that he wants to produce. God's glory dictates when he starts to move. So God reminds him, he says, yeah, nothing's changed. Your descendants are coming and they're coming in droves. They're just not coming right now yet. The timing is not right. My glory will come when the timing is right. And then I think secondly, we were reminded that God rarely does things quickly. He rarely does things quickly. I mean, if you go outside and, and you look up and God says, I'm going to give you descendants that, that number the stars, there, there's goodness in that promise, right? Like, I'm going to have a lot of descendants. But to get to that point, it's going to take a long time. Abram's not supposed to think that he's going to wake up the next morning with kids that outnumber the stars. That's not a fair expectation. 
So there's goodness. Abram walks out and is maybe overwhelmed. Wow, this is what God wants to do. But what probably rings true as well is it's going to take a long time for God to do that. I mean, we're talking centuries before we see a fulfillment of that type of magnitude. I mean, even 400 years later, when they leave Egypt to go to the promised land, they number what's probably consistent with other nations. Not an ungodly number that that would say, wow, that's a lot of people. I mean, we're talking centuries and centuries. And when you factor in the, the faith component of people coming to Christ and being counted as Abram's descendants, this is something that is still unfolding. So Abram looks to the stars and says, praise be to God. He's got a promise in place, a good promise for me. But it's not happening tomorrow and it's not happening next week. And God goes on to clarify, it's not happening in your lifetime, Abram. You're going to die in a good old age. You're not going to live in this land in the way that you're intended to for your descendants. You're not going to see these people that are coming that are a part of your line. And so it's a reminder to us that God rarely does things quickly. And that's important for us to grasp as believers because it can be easy for us to, to, to allow doubt to increase, for frustration to increase because we expect God to act quickly, because we act quickly. Especially as guys, we're prone to act quickly when we figure out something's wrong and needs to be fixed. We, we don't typically want to sit back and wait and delay and wait for the right timing. And so this is hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to grasp that we serve a God who doesn't operate in the same type of time frame as we do. Peter reminds us of that. That what looks like long delays to us is not a long delay to him. And so we're reminded that, that God works in his timing for his glory. And when he believes that the glory is at a point where he receives maximum, then he starts to work. And that rarely comes quickly for us. And it's something that we need to be reminded of because it helps shape our perspective on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. We're reminded God is going to work. God is going to bring good. He is going to receive glory. Maybe not as quickly as we want him to. And God reminds Abram of that in this text, I believe. That brings us to encounter number two. Which is a little less familiar to us, right? Like, Sunday school lessons are built around the first part. It's easy to tell kids to, to look at the stars and remember God's promises. It's not as easy to tell them to look at bloody animals and to be reminded of, of God's good promises. But that's what happens in the encounter number two section of this text. It says, um, verse, and I, like I said, we're going to delve into verse six more in depth next week. Um, he tells him to look to the stars. This is what your offspring is going to be like. And, and he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. So we, we kind of conclude that section that God had provided enough for Abram to be satisfied personally that things were going to continue to work out the right way, the way God said they were going to work out. And so he believes God counts it as righteousness. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Verse 8, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, 
Abram drove them away. So God promises possession to him here. God promises possession to him here. And it says in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The setting is real similar to Mount Sinai here. But the language that's being used, this darkness and stuff, it's not, it's not an evil thing. It's sort of that picture that we have when Israel's at Mount Sinai and there's thunder and lightning and, and just a, a holy aura comes over the setting. And we have that similar here with Abram. And the language is that he falls into a deep sleep similar to what Adam experiences in the garden when God provides Eve. Okay, so, so God is overseeing this setting. This is all orchestrated and instituted by him. And God promises possession of the land, but Abram questions God's plan. How do I know this is going to happen? And then number three here, God affirms through a covenant ceremony. God affirms what he's been promising to Abram through a, a formal covenant ceremony. This moves beyond just God's word. It moves beyond just God making promises. Now it now shifts to him actually performing a ceremony. You know, there's times when, when we have this, where, where our word is not good enough, we want a formal ceremony, right? It probably wouldn't be satisfying to a woman for a man to say, I want you to be my wife. We're going to be husband and wife forever. Let's just leave it at that, right? The formal ceremony communicates something. It communicates that, uh, that I'm serious, that I'm, that I'm real in this, that, I, that I'm really promising this, and I'm asking other people to see my promise on this. And so this formal ceremony, I think, is meant to resonate with Abram more than just a, a discussion. That I really am promising to do these things. Okay? And so God affirms through this covenant ceremony. Um, the fulfillment of the promises is sure, but death and suffering will precede the fulfillment. So, so God's unfolding some, some additional revelation here about what he's doing and how he's working and it says that the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God says, I'm going to fulfill these promises. That, that's not in doubt. But there's going to be death and suffering that come before it. Death and suffering are going to precede the fulfillment of these promises. God says, my promises will not come without opposition. And I think that's pictured there in verse 11 when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses and Abram had to drive them away. God's establishing something and there's, there's an attack from the outside and Abram's kind of shooing these birds away to not eat what he's laid out. In, in, according to God's instructions. God promises that opposition is coming. He predicts opposition. And if you jump ahead to Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, the exact same words are used where it says, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. If you're reading the text and you read the original language, you would pick up on the fact this is the fulfillment of what was promised. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to be sojourners in a land. And we see that unfold in the book of Exodus. God gives Abram insight that this is coming. Israel spends 430 years in Egypt. 
in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So Israel spends 430 years in Egypt. God says they're going to spend 400 years. Now, if there's any concern about conflicting time frame there, 400 versus 430, you know, there's some people that would say, this is why I don't believe the Bible, because there's discrepancies here in the years. Please don't let something that minor. If we need to explain it, we can say that 400 years they were in slavery, 30 years when Joseph was still alive, things were great, and, and the Pharaoh liked them, right? So about 400 years they're there in slavery, okay? And, and God rescues them. Not a moment before and not a moment too late, right? God doesn't change his mind 200 years into it and say, okay, that's enough. Now I'm going to pull them out. Nor does he say, you know what? I think they need to stay a little bit longer. It's at the right time that he predicted to Abram that he would pull this nation out and bring them back to the promised land. Abram spends, or Israel spends this amount of time there. But what's great about this situation, because Abram hears it and says, okay, we're going to be sojourners. We're not going to even be in the promised land for 400 years. We're going to be slaves for 400 years. How's that a good thing? We'll see as we get to the end of Genesis. And then um, what we won't see, um, but in, in the beginning of Exodus as well, is that God uses their experience there to build them into a great nation. In Genesis chapter 47, verse 6, The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. The Pharaoh welcomes them and then still sticks them basically in the best land possible in Egypt. And they begin to thrive there. I mean, when they come down there, it's Jacob and his, his family. Right? They're starting to become uh, maybe, maybe a little bit bigger than a small group. You know, they're, they're, they're a small local church size group that's moving down there. Nowhere near a nation. But they get set up in the greenhouse of nation development. And God oversees this whole thing. I mean, he, he puts them in an incubation chamber and they grow and flourish into this great nation so that after 400 years, they're ready to go conquer the promised land and establish their presence there. Um, I was thinking in terms of, of, of a game that I used to play as, a, as an illustration for this. Um, when I was youth pastor and there was this game uh, that one of my students got me to play on the computer and I forget the name of it, but essentially it was a, a game where you kind of built your own village and you, you planted things and grew things and you, you bought servants and you kind of expanded your kingdom and, and the goal was to like take other, over other kingdoms. And so I'm trying to relate to this guy. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll play. We'll, we'll start playing together. And like all kinds of people play on this thing. <clears throat> and what I found, it happened multiple times, is that when my, when my kingdom grew bigger than like my initial family hut and we really started to make progress, these other bigger nations would come in and like crush my little kingdom. And then I'd have to start all over. And then I'd, I'd spend hours like trying to grow my crops and, and we'd get bigger and I don't do this anymore. Like I vacated this because every time we would get big enough to make the game fun, these other kingdoms would come in and squash me. Think about it. If, if God had placed 
Abram's descendants in a, in a setting there in the promised land where they start to grow, eventually they would have garnered the attention of other nations around them and they would have come in and squashed them and said, no, 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 you're not going to get big enough to become a threat to us. God sovereignly sticks them in the back backyard of one of the greatest nations of that time, a nation that nobody's going to come in and pick on. I mean, Egypt was dominant. We've already talked about when famine set in, you needed Egypt. And so Egypt thrived on famine. People would come down and get them because they were right there on the Nile River. And Egypt was a powerful nation at that time. And Israel, without the notice of everyone else, grows into a great nation in their backyard. To the point that the new Pharaoh looks around and says, if we don't do something, we, we kind of missed when we were supposed to squash these people. These people could overthrow us right now if it dawned on them that they needed to. And so the Pharaoh comes in and, and oppresses them with taskmasters, hoping that they never pick up on the fact that you could squash us. So God has put them in a setting where they begin to flourish and grow and they're having babies. And um, even when Pharaoh tries to stop them from having babies, it seems to make them more fertile and more babies start being produced. And when they're leaving after 400 years, they are a great nation. They don't number the stars yet, but they're well on their way. And so it's God's goodness that he even puts them in this situation where they're afflicted and oppressed in a nation that's not their own. He's looking to the, to the bigger goal of putting them back in the promised land. But God tells Abram all these things. He tells them, trouble is coming, but Israel comes out victorious. He even tells them, Israel's going to leave with great possessions, right? He tells them, you're going to be down there for 400 years. Not you, Abram. You're going to die in your good old age. But your, your descendants are going to be down there. And they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation, right? He brings the plagues upon Egypt. He drops the Red Sea on top of them. He brings judgment on that nation that they serve. Afterward, they'll come out with great possessions. Exodus 12, 35 through 36 talks about is or Egypt giving them great possessions to leave with. It's interesting that it's the exact same word for the possessions that Abram turned down from Sodom, right? Remember, this is right on the heels of turning down possessions. God says, don't think that you've sacrificed anything. Your people are going to come out of another nation with all their possessions. So, so you haven't made a mistake, Abram. You haven't made a mistake by turning down Sodom's stuff. You're going to get plenty of stuff down the road. It's going to come after some difficulty. It's going to come after some trials and some troubles, but it's coming. And it's a promise that he's making to Abram. Secondly, not only does God promise that it's going to come with opposition, the delay in the fulfillment was not a threat to the fulfillment, but part of the divine plan to bring fulfillment. Let me say that again. The delay in the fulfillment. So it's going to take 400 plus years before this really, before the ball really gets rolling on God fulfilling these promises. The delay is not a threat. Egypt was never a threat to God's promises being fulfilled. Instead, they are part of the plan to bring about the fulfillment. Third, God's provision comes with a greater purpose. Okay. It's not all about Israel getting land here, right? Look, what, what, what there's a bigger thing at play here. In verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's provision with this land comes with a greater purpose. He will enact justice on the current land possessors. He says, I'm going to extinguish the Amorites, but it would not be right 
I would not be glorified as much as I need to be right now if I were to kill them. He says their sin, their iniquity is not where it needs to be. See, a lot of people want to look to the Old Testament and criticize the God of the Old Testament for the judgment that he brings. How could a loving God flood the earth? How could a loving God rain down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah? How could a loving God let Israel, his favorite nation, go in and kill a bunch of people? And they miss his delay in each one of those judgments, right? We, we remember, we studied the flood. God didn't bring the flood until evil was so bad that every thought was towards wickedness. We don't have innocent people dying in the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah got a warning sign. They were invaded by a nation. It was a wake-up call, should have been a wake-up call. And even when God, or even when Abram goes looking for righteous people as a means to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, they can't find anybody but Lot's family. And, and, and you can't even really include all of Lot's family in that group. And so it was, it was evil wickedness that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for. And even here, the Amorites, probably no righteous people amongst them, but God says, they're not as fully wicked as they're capable of being. And we're going to wait until they are fully capable of being as wicked as they're going to be. And they've ignored every opportunity for repentance before I bring judgment on them. So, Abram, you're going to get the land. But it's not just about me giving you land. You're going to be a tool. You're going to be a, a part of the bigger picture. You're going to bring justice upon a group of people that need my holiness to be revealed to them. Okay, so, so God's, God's giving him insight into why he's doing the things that he's doing in the timing that he's doing them. While Abram will not see the fulfillment of all the promises, he is promised a future of hope. Okay, so there's a, a, a redeeming quality to this. No, Abram, you're not going to see everything, but you will die in your old age at peace. You're going to be protected in your future. I think this points us to some of the New Testament promises that we're given. Hebrews 9.15 is one of those. While these Old Testament promises, some of them are specific to the individual, Hebrews 9.15 reminds us of our own inheritance. Therefore, he, talking about Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. All right. We're promised an inheritance. An inheritance that's being kept. It doesn't fade. It's going to be given to us at the right time. But we're also reminded in Second Peter, unfortunately not given as much clarification as Abram, or maybe fortunately, to not know the exact timing. But in Second Peter 3, 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All right, so we're promised things, but also communicated in Scripture that we too will experience a delay. So Abram is promised things, but then he's told it's not coming anytime soon. Here's a big picture. You've got this to look forward to. You're going to be resurrected to some of these promises, but in your lifetime, you're not going to see the fulfillment of it. We're promised in Scripture great things, great promises, a great inheritance. But we're also promised as well a delay so that we don't grow weary in well-doing, so that we don't begin to question and wonder, where is God? Where is he? When's he going to come through? When is he going to act in this situation? 
we should be encouraged, just like Abram, who's given insight. It's coming, but not for a while. It's the same for us in the New Testament. It's coming, but not for a while. Big picture stuff, we know we have a delay with. Some of the little stuff in our own life, selling a house, beginning a family, getting a job, some of those things that that we believe are part of God's provision for us, those too are things that at times we are told to wait. There's a delay. That God's timing is not our timing. And we see this in Abram's life and we should expect it in our own life as well. That God works, that he has promises in place, he's going to be glorified, we're going to receive good, not always according to our timing and not always in the ways that we would write our story. Oftentimes our circumstances don't line up in the ways that we think they should with God's promises, but but I would entertain the idea this morning that oftentimes our circumstances do line up more with what God has promised than we think. So we've we've entertained the idea that, okay, God's promised good, but then in my circumstances, I don't feel like I'm getting the good end of it. And so I'm I'm questioning and wondering because I've got promises on one hand, but I don't feel like I'm receiving those promises. And so we entertain the idea that sometimes our circumstances don't seem to line up. And what I want to suggest this morning is that maybe they really do line up with what God has promised. That he's promised good, but he's promised a delayed good, a good that's only realized through tribulation and suffering. See, Abram's got this promise put before him. But God says, before you ever realize that, your people are going to endure 400 years of suffering. And we talk about people suffering for their faith that we, 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 don't, we don't know the type of life that the Israelites endured for 400 years. As much as we care about the things that we're even mentioning this morning, it probably pales in comparison to what God's people are enduring for 400 years. These brutal taskmasters. Babies that are ripped away from their mothers because they're scared to death that they are going to overtake Egypt. They endure some incredible suffering that is part of God's plan, part of his promised plan, part of what he detailed for Abram. There's going to be 400 years of nightmare before you come out and see the promised land. And so I would entertain the fact that that God has promised good. He has promised good for his children and all things work together for good. But he's also promised that good oftentimes comes through suffering. In Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Talking about Paul. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I can number my tribulations yet as being many. So oftentimes we want to throw off the ones that do come to us, right? We want to say, oh, this needs to end right now. Like, this does not need to continue. And yet Paul says, I came back to strengthen you guys. Why? Because the only way we get there is through many tribulations. 
And I think because of, of maybe the culture that we're raised in, we're conditioned to think that when a tribulation shows up, it should be cast off as quickly as possible. That it should not persist for even a day, much less a week or a month or a year. And we've, we've experienced things in our church family that have persisted far longer than we wanted them to. There's been things that we've had to rally around and, and provide support to because it lasted far longer than any of us wanted to. But yet Paul is reminding his disciples, we get there only through many tribulations. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We'll start in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Oftentimes our circumstances line up more than we want to admit with what God has promised. He's promised good things, but he's promised that the journey to those good things oftentimes is a difficult journey. And he promised Abram, he said, you're going to get some great things down the line, but it's going to come with a lot of difficulty. And the encouragement is that he's already offered the fact that I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I'm your provider. And good is going to come in the midst of the difficulty, right? We already highlighted the fact they're being beaten up for 400 years. It's a nightmare situation for them. But what's happening? They're growing into a nation. They're about to take all the possessions of Egypt. It's not realized. It's not realized at the front end of that 400 years. There were many people that, that, that died and didn't see that. But the overall picture is that God has timing in place and it's perfect timing. And he never understands poor timing. That there's no concept of God for poor timing. When he's at work and he's working for good and for his glory. It's not always in the ways that we want him to. The fulfillment of the promises is sure, but death and suffering will precede the fulfillment. And then next, fulfillment of the promises rests on God obligating himself to keep the promises. The fulfillment of the promises rests on God obligating himself to keep the promises. And this is where the encouragement really flows from Genesis 15, that it's not just words being stated to Abram, that there's a ceremony that solidifies it's called the cutting of a covenant. And so it's not just empty words that God is communicating. He seals it with a ceremony to remind Abram for the rest of his life that promises will be fulfilled. Fulfillment of the promises rests on God obligating himself to keep the promises. God passes through these cut up animals. All right, it says that they're laid out and then in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, Abram watches God pass through these pieces. Now, for those that maybe don't understand what's happening here, this was how you took it to a next level when you were making promises with a business partner. Somebody that you were, you were providing an oath for, you were making a covenant with. This was taking it to the next level. Okay, so it's not just my word against yours. It's not just, hey, uh, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's pinky swear on it. This is taking it to the next level. Like we're, we're really doing business here. And what you would do is you would take these animals. You would, you would take your animals. He would take some of his. You'd cut them up. You'd divide them up. And you would walk through it. And you would state the promises that you were making to the other person. And the person would, would reciprocate promises back. I promise to do this. Okay, I promise to do this. And so they would walk back and forth in this bloody mess and make promises. Why would they do that? Because the other part of it was, 
if you don't keep the promises, may your fate be the same as these animals. So it was a visual reminder. Keep your promise because if you don't, I'm going to do to you what I've done to these animals. It was a serious thing. I mean, you didn't do this unless you were really serious about keeping the promises that you were making to the other individual because you were, in a sense, enacting a curse upon yourself. If I don't do it, then I'm to be cut up and separated because I failed to do what I said I was going to do. And so the big point of encouragement here is that there's only one individual that walks through this, and it's God. See, we've talked about salvation being based on promises that God makes to us, not promises that we make to him. Right? So it's not, I promise to never do this again, God, if you'll save me. That's not what repentance of our sin even is. It's not, I'll never do this again, because if that's what our salvation was based on, none of us would be saved. And so God very intentionally says, let me take something that you're familiar with, Abram. Abram may have done this with other people. He may have had these type of covenant relationships with other people. He would have been familiar with this process. What would have been, what would have been awe-striking for him is that he's not having to get up and participate. God walks back and forth in this setting and makes promises. And he's, he's making promises with the understanding that if I fail to keep these, that I should be cut away as well. Not that God could literally be cut in half, but that's the picture that he wants to resonate with Abram. These aren't just empty promises. I'm not just coming up with good ideas and, and, and cute things to relate to the stars here. I really want you to understand that this is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then cut me up and separate me like we've done with these animals. This would have been such an encouraging ceremony for Abram. Remember, he's, he's the one casting care upon God saying, are you going to do this? And it's almost as though God comes in very gently, but very specifically and says, absolutely. I'm absolutely going to do this. And I want that to resonate with us, even though we don't do that type of thing. And even though we're not going to do that this morning, I want that to resonate with us. That Christ did come and he did allow his body to be broken and he did allow his blood to be shed. And he has promised the same things that, that he inherits to us. We're co-heirs with Christ, the New Testament says, because we're adopted children. We are sons of God. And God's promises apply to us just as they did to Abram. He obligates himself to keep his promises. Yeah. Um, what do we learn about God from this? First, we, re- we learn that God does not have poor timing. God doesn't have poor timing. He's been known to wait 400 years to get it right. I mean, it would have been poor timing to kill the Amorites before their iniquity was, to com- was complete. When we use that phrase, well, that's poor timing. God doesn't have any concept of that. God, God waits always for the right timing. And so he's been known to wait 400 years to get it right. So even in our own life, we don't have to, to think and wonder if this is poor timing. Like, like, where's God in this? God always works in the right timing. And that should be an encouragement to us. He doesn't have poor timing. Revelation 6 reminds us that God is still continuing to wait for certain things to happen. In Revelation chapter 6, and Lord willing, we'll get to Revelation 6 in the next couple of years when we're working through Revelation, but it says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are martyrs in heaven that continue to see more people martyred, and they're like, God, when? 
When are you going to step in and stop this? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God has a number of martyrs that are supposed to be killed before he starts to to really act. God doesn't have poor timing. He waits for the exact right time to work and to act. He delays for repentance. That's what we wait on currently. We're waiting for our inheritance. We're waiting for all of his promises to be fulfilled. Why? Because Peter says he doesn't want any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I believe in context, it's really talking about those that will be saved. That God is waiting. He knows the number that's going to be saved. He knows the number that he has planned from the beginning of time and written their names in the book of life. And when the last one comes to Christ, I believe that's when Jesus comes and promises are fulfilled. And the book of Revelation is complete. And God has perfect time and he's waiting for the exact right time for his glory to be maximized. God controls the destiny of people. God doesn't have poor timing. We also learn that God controls the destiny of people. You see, he's prophesying things about large groups of people here in this passage. Not just, not just loose predictions, but actual prophecies that come to play. There's, there's a prediction and a destiny of Israel being enslaved for 400 years. Not too little, not too long, though. God knows exactly when he plans to rescue them. He also controls the destiny of the Egyptians. The judgment that he plans to bring upon that nation. It's never in doubt. For 400 years, Israel is, is, is being beaten. And it's never in doubt that judgment's coming at the right time. All of these destinies of Egypt and Israel, and even the Canaanites, the Amorites, all of it is secure in God's control. God sovereignly controls history in order for events to play out the way that he wants them to. These are, these are things that we need to know about God. These are things that shape us tomorrow. These truths. Because this is big picture stuff, but it relates just as much to the little things that we deal with. The things that we wait upon God for. We need these reminders so that we continue to hold fast to the hope that's been set before us. We need these promises and these reminders so that we can take care of our souls. And when we begin to to not be able to take care of them sufficiently, we need the exhortation of others to remind us. And I think it's helpful to be aware that oftentimes our circumstances do line up with what God has promised. That there are difficulties that are going to come before Jesus comes back. That there's many tribulations that we shouldn't be so readily desiring to cast off as though they're undeserved. It does not mean that we are to welcome and enjoy and relish in it. So in no way do I want you to think that you're supposed to walk out and experience something this week and say, praise God, keep it coming. Like we're not supposed to automatically shift our emotions and start to enjoy pain. Like that's not what we're suggesting. But what we are suggesting and what I'm saying is that scripture promises that there will be difficulties. And so in the midst of difficulties, it's when we need to run to him the most. Realizing that he is our shield, that he is our great reward in the midst of those difficulties. And that he's working good, even though it doesn't feel good, he's working good in the midst of it so that on the other end, the great good can be realized. So our application this morning, two things. Is there any timing in my life, not in my control, 
that I'm currently discontent with. And there's some things in your life, timing-wise, that is in your control, and your discontentment should lead you to start doing something about it. All right? There's things that, that, that we play a role in, right? Like we want a good job, go to school, right? Um, there are things that we want to get married as a guy, make sure that you start doing some things to get prepared for that. Get your finances in order, get a direction for your life. Like there's things that fall upon us that sometimes contribute to things not happening like we want them to, right? We're not talking about your personal responsibility to make things happen. What we are talking about are things that you cannot control. Are there anything in your, are there any, is there anything in your life right now, a timing issue that you can't control that you're currently discontent with. Because I want you to take the things that we've talked about this morning and be reminded of God's perfect timing with whatever it is you might be discontent with. And I know there's things that are a fight for the people in our church to be content with. I know there's things, we've talked about things. I've talked with you individually about things that I know you have to fight to be content with because the timing's not where, what you want it to be right now. We can be reminded from this chapter in, in, in Abram's life that God reminds us that there's no such thing as poor timing. The only thing he knows is right timing. And then secondly, I'd love to invite you guys to read and study through Galatians 3, Romans 4, and James 2 this week. These three chapters are paramount to understanding what God says in 15.6 about it being counted as righteousness. These three authors, or two, Paul, both in Galatians and Romans, and then James, they rely heavily on this understanding of, of Abram's salvation being a faith response to God's promises. Remember, Abram doesn't get up and make promises. He doesn't get up and start walking and make promises, and then God says, okay, you're righteous now. As long as you keep your promises, you'll be counted righteous. It's it's Abram believing the promises that God is walking through and saying that counts him as righteous. And so I, I'd love to have you guys read through Galatians 3, Romans 4, and James 2 because we're going to be talking about those three passages next week in conjunctions with Genesis 15, 6. Um, kind of a, a, a salvation understanding rooted in the Old Testament that, that's so important for us to understand in the New Testament because it's the same gospel, it's the same salvation. So I'd love to have you be familiar with those passages before we delve into them next week because that's a lot a lot to cover if, if we're being introduced to it for the very first time together. So I'd love to invite you to read through those chapters together. All right? Um, as, we, as we continue to meditate on these things and contemplate these things, um, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite those that are leading us in worship to come, and we're going we're gonna to spend time ending our service through song um, because I think we need to... Uh, meditate on these things, but then also have them reinforced through uh, the lyrics that oftentimes Tyson chooses that, that are meant to teach our souls uh, in a different way than just listening to a sermon. Um, and so I want us to connect our emotions with our minds and, and be able to praise God for the truths that we've looked at this morning and to know that they're true, to know that his timing is perfect, that he doesn't make mistakes, and that he is working for good, but his timing is oftentimes different than our timing, and his ways are oftentimes different than our ways. But we can be reminded that he has promised difficulties, but he's promised that we come out of those difficulties, and that he always works for the good of his children. 
Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.